Lord, we are very, very thankful uh, for the sweet opportunity we have um, uh, once our summer months are over to be able to gather on Wednesday nights in the fall and in the spring to um, walk through your word. Lord, I pray that you would allow our time tonight to be fruitful, to be good, to be pleasing to you, to be upbuilding to the body. And I pray that you would allow this time not to be guided just by some prepared notes, but to be guided by the work of the Spirit. Lord, please keep me and everyone here in step with the Spirit as we talk through some details in Exodus 32. Lord, I also pray specifically tonight that you would help us to identify idolatry in our own lives, um, that we may... Um, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week we started our time by recovering a few hundred years of Israel's history. Y'all did a wonderful job. The summer months didn't, the cobwebs weren't too crazy, and y'all seemed to be able to jump right back in, and it was real good. We covered a few hundred years of history there. And at the end of covering a few hundred years of history, we met two guys with weird names. Does anyone remember what they are? Aholiab and Bezalel. That's right. Someone was talking to me afterwards and asking about um, Beelzebul, and that's a different person altogether. And so Bezalel and Aholiab are who we met last week. Um, why were these guys important? Yes, God had given them a specific gift that wasn't common. And what was that particular gift for these guys? Was it baking? No. What? Sewing. But they wouldn't want to be known just for sewing, just, just to be fair. They're guys. They, they could sew. But they would want to be known for some other things too. So sewing was one. What else? Craftsmanship. See, that's such a more, that's a manly word. Sewing, not so much, but it's a craft. So, um, so yeah, they were known for really the specific artwork that was going to be um, required of Israel in the temple. So they were going to have a lot of artwork and a lot of, uh, what are some of the things that were going to need to be made by a Bezalel and a Holy Abbot crew? What were some of the specifics? Sewing the priest garments would be one. What else? Say that again. Yeah, cutting jewels for setting, precious stones, Ark of the Covenant. All right. Say that again. Wood carving. I apologize for asking you to repeat yourself twice. I apologize. <laughs> Wood carving. What else? Basin. What else? Yeah, tables, utensils, lampstand, altar. Yeah, exactly. Now, why was it comforting that God had two guys named Bezalel and Aholiab who would be heading this up? Why was that comforting to Moses, who's on top of the mountain hearing from God, Israel's at the bottom of the mountain? Why would it be comforting for him to hear about Bezalel and Aholiab? Yes. Yeah. God gave, it's comforting to know that when God calls us to something, he also provides us with the resources and with the people to do that. And that's how it is for us today. If we see something that needs to be done and we're like, well, who's going to do that? We pray and we believe and we trust that God will provide whoever's needed at that time uh, to, to make it happen. Whether it's um, props for a musical or, or um, something, a teacher for a classroom, uh, a home for a child even. I've seen God provide some amazing resources and amazing people when we knew what the need was, but we weren't quite sure yet how it was going to happen. So we get to see that today as they saw it then. And it was comforting because mainly the nation of Israel at that point was what? What was their main profession? Brickmakers. Yeah, it was slave labor, essentially. They were a nation of slaves that had been making bricks and um, they had skills, they had gifting, but to know that there was someone specific who was going to be able to take that gold and hammer it into the shape of cherubim with the wings just right and parted just at the right distance and sitting just right, um, that's comforting. So we found it to be a mind-blowing thing to consider the secret influences of a sovereign God. 
what he's orchestrating, who he's raising up. In fact, we've got the kids in here tonight. Third, raise your hand if you're in third through sixth grade. Like, Corey, Pfeiffer, thank you. Sixth grade, is that sixth grade? Yeah, nice. I want you kiddos to know, and Corey, um, that God has things in store for you to do. God has, in fact, gifted you guys in specific ways that you may not know yet. There are things that God will call you to in your life where if I told y'all, hey, guess, guess what God's going to do with you when you're 24? You'd be like, what? I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know the words you're speaking. But what I want you to see is that God is always doing more than we know. Um, he, uh, he will use you for specific movement in his kingdom in ways that you do not yet know. But do you know how you come about to know those ways? How do y'all think you can find out from God what those ways are that he might use you? Kiddos. How might you know what God wants for your life? Yeah? He'll tell you in your mind, and how does he oftentimes do that? You're exactly right. What's this? Third through sixth graders all at once, what's this? That's the Bible. And who breathed this out? All right, we're going to start over. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, teaching, training in righteousness, that we would be competent and equipped for every good work. So one of the ways over the years that you'll learn what God has for you is by reading this Bible. Another way is through prayer. Another way is through it being affirmed and encouraged in the body you're walking with. Um, I came here to be a music guy, and now I'm teaching on Wednesday nights. I didn't know that. If you would have told me in 2003, hey, you're going to need to teach a study, I'd have been like, no, 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 no. I play music. I do not speak, I sing. And I, I, in fact, I went three years in ministry before I got here, maybe more, where I didn't speak between songs because I thought, I'm not that guy. I'm not supposed to do that. I need to keep my mouth shut because it was always annoying to me when the music guy thought he was the preacher and then he would say things that were non, nonsense and unbiblical. And so I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't know at that time what God had in store, and how, but, but it was only through the local body that things were affirmed, and, and I was encouraged in some things. And so I want you all to know that God has big things in store. I mean, the, the dailiness of life is, is so complex and crazy that it is very comforting for God's people to know that what, what we came to last week, that God pays attention to all of the details before we pay attention to any of the details, God pays attention to all the details for we pay attention to any of the details. And because of this, we work hard and we rest rightly. So to be clear, if you're able to do something, how are you enabled to do it, no matter what it is? In faith. Who enables you? God. I'm going to need y'all to pep it up a little bit tonight. I really feel like I'm, I'm having to reach here, okay? God enables us to do the things that he calls us to do. We don't have a handful of our own bag of tricks that we will let the Lord in on if we decide that maybe, maybe I'll let him in on the fact that I can do this. He, he doesn't know. Even though he's God, he doesn't know yet. So everything that we have been enabled to do in faith, we've been enabled to do so by God. He equips us. It, says, it said last week that he equips all men with the gifts and the artistic abilities by the work of the Spirit. So, God's pay attention to all the details before we pay attention to any. Now we're going to get into our text tonight. Moses has been on top of Mount Sinai for about six chapters now, right? Is anyone wondering what's been going on with Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai? Anyone been wondering that? Because we've been at the top of Mount Sinai for a while now. I mean, six chapters is like, you know, two years at Crosspoint. So, if you're wondering, um, we're about to find out what has been going on with the Israelites. Look at verses 1 through 8 in Exodus 32. I'm going to read all eight verses aloud, and then we'll take them one at a time. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
do you like it when someone addresses you like that? Just, just for the record, just side note. Up. Like if I said that to any of y'all, you'd look at me like, I will throw my shoe at you. I will cut you. So um, th- this seems to be rude. Their, their tone does not seem to be one of respect. So up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, <laughs> the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, no, guys, this is not a good idea. I have been appointed to a leadership position, and I cannot let y'all step headlong into the wickedness that you are suggesting. Nope, that's not what Aaron said. Aaron's a pushover, a coward. Listen to what he says. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Not much pushback from Aaron. And bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What in the world is going on? Like sometimes when you're reading your Bible, you need to stop and say, What in the world? just happened. This is one of those moments where it's like, this makes very, very, very little sense. If you are following the the storyline here, they just said, I carved this thing. These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There should be a whole bunch of Israelites going, what? Doesn't look like him. Pretty small, pretty timid. He received the gold from their hand, fashioned it. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, He built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Today shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, early. They got up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you... (laughs) Hear what the Lord said. Go down, your people. You see the difference? He didn't say my people. He's like, hey, Moses, your people who you brought out, guess what they're doing? Go down, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, Quick point, when you say something and you think maybe God didn't hear it, he does. In fact, he quoted it verbatim to Moses on top of the mountain. Now, it is unbelievable what we can distract ourselves with when we lose sight of the divine realities being carried out by God. God is always carrying out these divine realities by the power and the work of his own hands. And when we lose sight of that, it is remarkable, sadly remarkable, how much we can distract ourselves with and lose sight of that because of some different reasons we're going to talk about tonight. So in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, from the mountain the people gathered themselves together and to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. So Moses, we don't know what happened to that guy. Um, what are the people, at, uh, what are they doing here? What, what are the people doing? What are they asking for? A leader? And specifically, they're asking for a God they can control. Okay. Why are the people doing this? According to the text. Say that again. Yeah, they can be scared of the real God. We're going to talk in a little bit about the difference between a golden calf and God. Yeah. Look at what it says in that first verse. I'm looking for the, why would they do this? What would be the cause of them saying, you know what? Because some guys, you can just picture them around a camp. There must have been a few guys who said, you know what? Let's make something happen. Look at what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed. When the people saw that Moses delayed. I would say their motivation is impatience. They're impatient. Oh, the inefficiency of ministry. 
This whole nightmare of a scene started because the people saw that Moses delayed. Let me ask you a question. Did they have somewhere else to be? No. No, they didn't. They had left Egypt where they had been for how many years? Yeah, and they were moving toward where? Promised land. Okay. Promised land. Okay. They didn't have anywhere to be. They were planted there at the base of Mount Sinai because that's where God put them. Did they have any deadlines that they were being pressed upon? Any deadlines? Was Moses' delay getting in the way of something that they really needed to be doing? No. They're impatient. Moses is taking too long. We don't even know what happened to that guy. The inefficiency of ministry is sometimes very difficult. I wish when I'm like, um, there's some things that I'll go do just because I can say they're done. Because in ministry, you're focused on eternal matters all the time. And I love putting, making a list that I can go back and cross it off. Does the yard need to be mowed? Not anymore. I love that. Oh, sense of accomplishment. It's so good, crossing off the list. But ministry is very inefficient because we're dealing with eternal matters. We're dealing with things that take time. We can't just say, okay, we're going to charge the gates with water pistols and that's that and we're going to get this thing done and everyone's going to be saved no matter what. We can't do that. We wait on the Lord. We, we wait on the, the movement of the Spirit. I think the Lord was trying to teach them patience. Did he really need 40 days to communicate everything to Moses that needed to be communicated? Did, did God need seven days to, to create everything, or six, and then rest on the seventh? Did he need the six days? No, I think he's teaching us how to make things, how to, how to be patient, and how to wait on him, and how to live our lives after the pattern that he has set for us. So, they were very, very impatient. Remember how we ended the last chapter. God has given Moses two tablets of the testimony, written with what? The finger of God. This is like high watermark. Seriously, God just communicated with his people by taking big pieces of stone and writing what he desires for his people with his finger on the stone. You can imagine Moses is like, I can't wait for everyone to see this. Right? You ever done something? You ever drawn a picture for your parents? I can't wait for them to see this. Imagine Moses with these stone tablets written by the finger of God. I cannot wait for everyone to see this. It is now Moses' responsibility to go and tell the people all that God has said. And he goes back down the mountain to a mess, an absolute mess. What a bummer. This is another perk of being in a position of leadership. Now, I'm not just talking church leadership or work leadership. A lot of you have different leadership positions in your life. And uh, when I say perk, I don't mean that. Um, Your quiet time may end with the news of someone making bad and godless decisions. Your um, parents, or no, anyone, have you ever been on a mission trip and you come home and you can't wait to tell everyone what happened and it doesn't seem that anyone's nearly as interested as you are because of the time you just spent? Parents, have you ever had a good, quiet time with a quiet cup of coffee at a quiet table only for it to be shattered by your children who are trying to kill each other at the moment? Has that ever happened? Sometimes... Uh, we'll have that sort of Moses moment where he just had some of the most unbelievable time with the Lord and he walks down the mountain and it, what a mess. Full-blown. Well, what he descends into when he comes back down the mountain is far beyond um, bad decisions. They're not just making bad decisions. Israel has fallen headlong into full-on idolatry. My question for you is, what is idolatry? putting anything before God, okay? I think we can move on. I like that. (laughs) Putting anything before God, that's idolatry. So an idol is whatever that thing is that you're putting before God, okay? We'll come back and look at that definition a little bit more. Look again at verse one. Who's giving the orders in verse one? Up! Who's giving the orders? The people, okay? What are the orders? Up, and what else? Make us some gods. (laughs) Get up, make us some gods. Now, who's receiving the orders? Aaron, okay. 
So to be clear, the people are asking Aaron to make them an idol. For the sake of context, what has Israel seen the Lord do so far? Say what? The plagues. Let's, let's spend a minute there. Like what? Hail. What kind of hail? Yeah, VW-sized hail. Huge hail that crushes livestock and sycamore trees. Okay, what else have they seen? Locusts that devour everything. What else? Water turned to blood. That one would stick with me. That one would stick with me for sure. You see the smell, and you know they're digging, trying to find clean water, and it's just blood. Okay, what else? Frogs. What would you say? Someone said darkness. And what kind of darkness? Darkness that could be what? Felt. Okay, what was the last one? Death of the firstborn. Did any of their firstborn die? No. Why? Yes. The blood on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb covered them, and God did not kill the winged destroyer known as God in this chapter, those chapters, did not kill their firstborn. He spared their lives because they obeyed him, and they did what he told them to do as a worshipful act of Passover. So, They've seen a few things. They've been witness to some pretty amazing things regarding Yahweh. Now, it's hard to think. Like, what did they ask for? We just said what they've seen. What are they asking for? Gods. What kind of gods? Yeah, the kind you can make with your hands and whatever resource. Yeah, the stuff you plundered from the Egyptians who were dead in, in what? What body of water? Oh, let's not forget about the Red Sea thing where the water parted and you walked across on dry land and then everyone chasing you didn't. Can you make us, can you carve us something? Can you carve a little, I mean, I, I don't know where Moses is. Can you carve us something? This is, this is amazing. It shows what condition we're in when we lose sight of God and we, and we walk in our sin and we walk in our flesh and we are impatient with the Lord. Now, what is the reason that they gave for desiring gods and idols to be made for them? What was their reason? Do you remember? We don't know what happened to Moses. Wait a minute. Do y'all see what's happening here? I want to dissect this scenario so we can see what is going on in the minds of these Israelites who have seen such amazing things from God, yet they want you to carve them some little gods to carry around with them. What happened there? They said, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Who has Israel really lost sight of? God. They have not lost sight of Moses. And so they are beside themselves. They have lost sight of Yahweh. They have lost sight of the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, well, they're sheep. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. Maybe they were just trying to wing it and do what was best, and they accidentally did what was wrong. Maybe they were foolish to what was going on. I would imagine that was certainly at play. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're free. We are, yeah, that we're free, so we're entitled to some things. And we can make our own decisions. I think that was probably very much at play. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean... Adam was guilty of the same thing in the garden. It was, there was delay. He was impatient, and, and look what happens. Yes, there's a, there's a god in Egypt named Asis, I think, or Adis, or Asid. There's an S and a D and an I and an A in whatever the name is. And I can't remember what it was, but that would have been something that they were normally um, seeing in Egypt was this um, 
small golden calf that, that they would pray to in Egypt. So they were, they were certainly privy to and a part of idolatry in Egypt as part of the Egyptian customs. And so that's, exact, that's one, certainly what was at play of, let's go back to what's, what's familiar to us. But what's familiar to them in comparison to what they've seen from the Lord, it's just it, the difference between the two is completely remarkable. So were they just foolish? Well, no. Turn to Exodus 24. I want to make sure, you know, sometimes when we slowly study through the word the way we have in Genesis and Exodus particularly, sometimes we can lose sight of, of what the scenario actually is and we can forget details. And I want to make sure we don't do that. So Exodus 24, and I'm going to read verses three through four. This was the last time that Moses was at the bottom of the mountain. So for the last six chapters, Moses has been at the top, but before he went back up, he came back down because the Lord told him to. And look at what happens in 24, three through four. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So the people know all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice. This is a high watermark. All of Israel with one voice, like Romans 15, one voice said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what happens here in 24 is they know what the Lord wants of them. He knows the, they know the rules. They know all that he has said. And they've entered into a covenant with the Lord a covenant, and they're worshiping God. So they're not in the dark six chapters later. This Moses, where is he? We don't know what's come of him. Let's make idols. So they know the words of the Lord. They know the rules of the Lord. Let's look even more specifically at what those are. Turn to Exodus 20. Israel has entered into a covenant with Yahweh. They're not simply a confused people waiting on their leader to return. They are in covenant. So more specifically, the rules and the words of the Lord. Let's read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, there's their first mistake. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, there's their second mistake. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third generation of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. In their request to Aaron. They have forgotten who brought them out of Egypt. They have broken the first commandment, no other gods before me, and they have broken the second, no carved images. Do you see what's going on here? This is full-on disobedience and idolatry. A.W. Pink notes, man must have an object, and when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. It's true for you and for me. When we turn from the true God, we will inevitably crave a false one. And that will come in the form of an idol. It was not that they were peeved at the lengthy, that he said peeved, I think it's funny. It was not that they were peeved at the lengthy absence of Moses, but that they had cast off their allegiance to Jehovah. Their hearts had departed from him. That's what's going on here. It wasn't that they were just uncertain of where Moses was, they had cast aside their allegiance to Yahweh. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, it's Moses told us that God said this, but now we can't see Moses, so let's go do what we want to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, you don't put your hope in a man. You put your hope in Yahweh, and you can't, if you step off into something, you can't say that it was because you didn't know where the man you were hoping in was. I mean, it's, it's an allegiance to God. It's a covenant. Turn back to Exodus 32. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's a great point. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings in your ears. And then verse 3, so all the people took off the rings. Verse 4, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into the graving tool, made a golden calf. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We've established who's giving the orders, what the orders are, and who's receiving the orders. Now, Aaron, how is he receiving the orders? How is he receiving them? Yeah, he's just listening to whatever they tell him to do. Why do you think that is? What's driving that? What fear is driving Aaron? Fear of man. Absolutely. Pink again notes, instead of putting his trust in the Lord, the fear of man brought him a snare. Remember that verse I read for the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning, Isaiah 51, 12 through 13? God says this. You don't have to turn there. You might write it in your notes. But Isaiah 51, 12 through 13, God says, I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man? who dies, of the Son of Man, who's made like the grass and forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens. To be clear, this situation is what it is because Aaron and the rest of Israel have allowed the fear of other things to drown out a proper fear of the Lord. They have broken covenant with God and fallen headlong into idolatry. The call to love the Lord your God first has been trumped by other things, and now they have fallen into idolatry. The fear of other things, the fear of the uncertainty of the future, the fear of I can't have what I want, the fear of I want to step off into this, and these new rules say that I can't do this, the fear of um, who they're seeing as their God, the fear of so many things has trumped the fear of the Lord, and they've broken covenant. So I mentioned it earlier, for the sake of uh, conversation, what's the difference between God and a golden calf? Yeah, creator, created. Ultimately, we're going to come up with a list here of things that aren't good gods. Creator, good, created, idol. Okay? What else is the difference between God and a golden calf? Yeah, the calf can't tell you anything. So God communicates clearly to his people. The calf can't speak. What else? The calf can't do anything except sit where you put it. That's the thing. Have you ever had like a sculpture or, or something? And you, when you put it somewhere, what you'll oftentimes find is it doesn't do anything. It doesn't walk away. It doesn't make decisions. It doesn't clean the house while you were gone. It generally just sits there. What else is the difference between God and a golden calf? The calf can be destroyed. I don't like the golden calf anymore. Anyone else? Okay, throw it in the fire. Okay, God, indestructible, eternal, unchanging. Calf can be melted down in a matter of seconds if the fire's hot enough. Okay, what else? A calf can't love us. Yeah, that's true. We could maybe cuddle with the golden calf and feel better for a minute, but the calf cannot express love the way our wonderfully compassionate God can express love. What else?
handcrafted by man. God, not so much. Say that again? Yeah, it can't lead them. If you have to hold your leader out in front of you, not much of a leader. That's the point. That's why they like it. Is there anything more timid than the golden calf? The ground has been shaking. Smoke has been pouring forth. Peals of lightning and thunder are the ways that God is communicating to Moses. They're hearing, and Moses is hearing words. That, that's crazy. How about a golden calf? Something timid. Something that I can, if I don't want it to look at me, I can just make it look the other way. Timid. Very different from our God. It shows the idolatry that's in their hearts. All right. Look at verses 5 through 8. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar. And Aaron made proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Question. What does this have to do with the Lord? That's pretty confusing on a first read. Why do you think they called it a feast to the Lord? Maybe to justify their actions. Oh, yeah, I think you're onto something there. Yes. We love you, Lord, golden calf version. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And notice that they had a burnt offering and a peace offering, but there's no sin offering there. Let's not talk about that right now. I think that's what's going on here. Now, a feast to the Lord. One theologian said, Thus it has always been and still is. Man ever seeks to hide the shame of his idolatry by putting, it, by putting over it the name of deity. Men have set up their idols and then sought to dignify and sanctify their inventions by worshiping them in the name of Jesus. Let's talk about that for a minute. I want us to consider some ways that we can slip into the pit of idolatry. What are some idols that we could set up and then worship them in the name of Christ? If I need to go first, I will. Our church. Ouch, what does that mean? Yeah. Do you tell more people about your Jesus or your church? Think about that. I'm a little bit convicted about that for this body of believers particularly. I think we would be much more open to telling someone, oh, I found a great church home. I love my church. We have small groups. I want to invite you. And you can do that over and over and over again and never actually say anything about Jesus. I'm hoping that what is jumping off the tongue and lips of this congregation is, I, can't, I have to tell you about my Jesus. You need to be a part of church, certainly. But can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about my Savior? Can I tell you about the one who, who has um, saved me and changed my life completely, washed me, and I'm a new creation in him? I, in fact, I cannot, uh, I want to tell you about my church, but I have to tell you about my Jesus. There's a difference there. So our church can certainly be an idol. We invite people to our church. We talk a lot about our church. We raise funds for the building that we call the church. I grew up in a church where we were suffering together for at least two decades. We were all suffering together. It was a call. And I think we had a banner that said, if you build it, they will come. I was like, you should write Kevin Costner, because that's from Field of Dreams, a movie, not the Bible. And, or maybe it was Kevin Costner's brother, or maybe it was, I don't, I don't remember who it was, but it wasn't from the Bible, that's clear. And, yeah, um, we would bring our offerings. Was it for God? Or was it for the building? So we can make a God out of church. We can rename it. We can make it look all crazy. We can put hours and hours into a Sunday morning worship experience and spend like five minutes on the sermon. We could be, we could be guilty of that in two seconds. All right. 
I'm not going to beat a dead horse. What else? What are some other things that we could set up and then worship them in the name of Christ? What? Family. Yes. How are, what are some ways we can do that? Is family a bad thing? No. Okay, so how could we possibly twist it to be an idol? Yes. Putting your family before God. That's, I can't love my neighbor, including my family, if I don't first love God. But if you turn it around, and what does it look like when you begin to put your family before God? Say that again. Glorifying yourself before him. Absolutely. Yes. I don't want my children to want for anything. And if that was one of your desires that became an idol, how would that pan out? What would you do? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I want the best for my children. But if you take them to 10 games in a weekend and then you're too tired for worship, maybe, maybe things are imbalanced, possibly. If you have a work schedule that doesn't allow you to be a part of a body because of what you want to provide for your family, maybe that's imbalanced too. Maybe there's idolatry there, potentially. This can be really uncomfortable to talk about. One of the examples that I thought about was, I'm an overprotective parent because I love Jesus. But like, that could be really easily skewed to idolatry. I'm very overprotective. The Lord blessed me with two daughters before I had a son and promptly with a third daughter after that very overprotective. What I could do is say, you know what? I'm overprotective and I keep a close eye and, and I don't trust anybody because I have to be an overprotective dad because Jesus is a, a shepherd and, and he had a staff. And so um, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to make sure my family's okay. But that could easily turn into a fear of man that trumps worship of God. Like, it could really easily turn into, I fear man. I fear something bad happening. And in fact, I could act in such a way saying, I don't know if I can trust God, so I'm going to put a thousand things in place to make sure I can make sure nothing ever happens to my children. Do you really trust the Lord with your children? I was thinking about the prosperity gospel. I like being rich, so I'll ignore the warning about desiring to be rich and put the name of Jesus on it. That's a summary. I was thinking about happiness. We can make unbiblical decisions about marriage, diet, friendships, and say, well, wouldn't Jesus want me to be happy? And we can make an idol out of happiness and put lower than happiness what God has actually already told me he wants for my life. Worship music. Oh, this one kills me. I'm a musician, and, and this one is one that I always saw it creeping in, and I see scary possibilities. Do you really like the accolades and praise of men, yet achieve them through worshiping God and leading others in a like manner? We got to be real careful about that kind of stuff. Stand up on stage, leather pants, light show, smoke machine, spiky hair, spotlight. This is all about Jesus. Really? Really? We did a CD release party one time. And like the goal of a CD release party is to sell CDs. But we were a worship band. And I was thinking, well, this is hard because this whole thing needs to be about God. But I really need to sell some CDs. These are expensive to make. And so that balance was always there. I'm like, all right, y'all buy a CD. God's good? Oh, that didn't sound right. Like it can be so imbalanced so quickly. We can have these things that we set up as, as our idols and then we worship them in the name of Jesus. So when we talk about the slippery slope of idolatry, I want to run through something very quickly here at the end of our study. And it's from the book, The Peacemaker. And he talks about the progression of an idol. And the first step when we're 
moving towards idolatry, the first step is not necessarily bad. I desire. Can we have good desires? Yes, I hope we can. Can we have bad desires? Of course. So, I have a desire. And at some point, that desire becomes a demand. A demand. What's the difference between a desire and a demand, in your own words? What do y'all think? Yeah. Yeah, I want this. Turns into, this is a must. This is non-negotiable. That's exactly right. This is, I don't just desire it. I have to have this. It can be a good thing. It can be peace in your marriage. I desire peace in my marriage. But if I demand it, I might start slipping off into some idolatrous movement. I can desire my finances to be in order. But if I demand it, then I can start skimping on things and not taking care of things I need to because I want a sense of safety in in what I'm doing. So we have this desire, and then it becomes a demand. Um, When we see something as being essential to our fulfillment and well-being, it moves from being a desire to a demand. It begins to control our thoughts. It begins to control our behaviors. And in biblical terms, it has become an idol. So getting back to that definition, an idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. Happy, fulfilled, or secure. Anything apart from God. There are good desires, but if they turn into demands that must be met in order for us to be satisfied and fulfilled, that can lead to bitterness, resentment, self-pity. It can destroy a family, a business, and even a church. Ask yourself, what am I preoccupied with? What's the first thing on my mind when I wake up? What's the last thing on my mind when I go to bed? What do I want to preserve or avoid at all costs? Where do I put my trust? What do I fear? When a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, and resentment, and bitterness, and anger, or depression? Is there something I desire so much that I'm willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. So you desire something, and then you demand it, and then you judge. That's the third step if you're taking notes. Desire, demand, and then judge. David Powelson, he's a Christian counselor, smart guy who writes books and journals and things. He says, when you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. You've probably all experienced that. If you're in a fight with someone or an argument, your mind becomes filled with these accusations. Well, you did this. Well, you did this. Well, when I did that, I didn't mean that. Well, you you sure seem like you meant that. And all of a sudden, your mind can be filled with accusations when you fight with someone. He says, when you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms that we establish. And according to James 3.15 and James 4.7, When we judge others and condemn them in our hearts for not meeting our desires, we're imitating the devil. We cannot do that. We cross the line, however, when we begin to sinfully judge others, which is characterized by a feeling of superiority, indignation, condemnation, bitterness, or resentment. Resentment, sinful judging, often involves speculating others' motives. Don't assume others' motives. If you're at odds with someone, you're you're even arguing over something, talk through it. Don't assume the motive of another person. That's dangerous, and you may be stepping off into idolatry because you want to make sure their motive matches up with your desire and your demand. Most of all, it reveals the absence of a genuine love and concern toward them. When these attitudes are present, our judging has crossed the line and we're playing God. Instead of giving people room for independence and disagreement or failure, we rigidly impose our own expectations on them. Then the fourth step, after I desire, I demand, I judge, and I punish, is the last one. Idols always demand sacrifices. If you're taking notes, write that down. Idols always demand sacrifices. There is no such thing as an idol that will demand no sacrifice from you. It's going to take something. So we may find ourselves guilty of placing others on the altar of our idol 
and sacrificing them not with pagan knives, but with the sharp edge of our tongues. We have to be careful not to step into idolatry. Now, this is a helpful tool, those four things, because if you work backwards, it can help you to define your idols and see how you've strayed from what may have been an originally good desire. It's a really helpful tool. If you're at odds with someone, you can look at your actions and say, am I punishing them? Like, when I did that, was I punishing the person I was arguing with? When I said that, was that a punishment? And if you can say, yeah, I'm punishing them. Well, you can go back and say, well, what was the judgment that I made that led to that punishment? And then as you see, well, maybe I, I made a judgment that they were like this, and so I'm not going to do this for them. So you move backwards. Was I punishing them? Well, what was my judgment? Well, that judgment had to be rooted in a demand I was making. Do this or blank, or don't do this or blank. And then you have that demand where you got demand, judgment, punishment, but you're working backwards from punishment, judgment, demand. Then you can see in that demand, well, I made the demand because I desired blank. And you can see, maybe I can move differently. Maybe that desire is a good biblical desire, but I can't move in a manner so as to enforce my kingdom on someone else or walk in idolatry with someone else. Next week, we're going to consider the wrath and holy anger of God. So y'all come ready to, to dig in. Let's pray. Lord, we love you very much. I pray that you would keep us from idols. As it says throughout the word, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Um, Lord, idolatry so easily creeps into our lives, and ultimately it's because we lose sight of you. Lord, we will sometimes blame it on having lost sight of other things or getting fixated on other things, but the reality is uh, when we're in idolatry, we are abandoning our allegiance that we have made in our covenant with our Lord. And I pray that you would keep us from it. And I pray that you would use a community of faith to help us to, to not step off into that. And just like we saw on Sunday morning in Galatians 6, that when we someone, see someone entangled in that, in that idolatry or that sin, that we would lovingly come in and restore them with a spirit of gentleness. We love you, Lord. You are very, very good to us. You set an example for us in all things. You keep our eyes heavenward. You give us your spirit that, that these things that we see ourselves called to, sometimes they seem impossible, by the, but by the power of your spirit, they're not. And so I pray that in our weaknesses, we would depend on you, even in our strengths, that we would depend on you, um, that, that your strength would be made perfect in our weakness and that we would boast only in the cross of our Lord. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.